Hello, and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today, our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, will deliver a message regarding the ultimate question that we face in this life. You can follow along with the message in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, Mark 8, 27 through 30, and Luke 9, 18 through 20. You can also find our weekly message outline and other resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood Church app. I want you to think about that line Kara was singing, lead me to the end of myself. Do you understand that? Take me beyond my self-centeredness, my self-sufficiency to Christ-centeredness and God-dependency. We continue our series, The Life of Jesus. They've got another thousand books in if you don't have yours yet. So buy it. You can read it. You can also sign up for the app and you'll be given each day's reading. And so read through it and read it over again. Today's message is entitled, Ultimate Question. You can turn in your um, books to reading 96. We learn in the scripture, the context of this is that Jesus has gone and prayed alone at Luke 9, 18. And then they've traveled toward Caesarea Philippi. They haven't reached there yet. So before reaching the city, Jesus confronted his followers with the question that every person must answer. And so we begin in reading 96. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now let me see it. There's a map here I want to show you. Caesarea Philippi is in red. It's about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It was a city that was named after the god Pan. And, and, god, and Pan was worshipped there. But Herod Philip, who was the son of Herod the Great, renamed the city after the Caesar, but also after himself. So he wanted to exalt himself a bit, but also because there was another city named Caesarea that was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So when they came to that region, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man was Jesus' most common designation for himself. It was a title for the Messiah, found in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And it emphasized the humanness or the humanity of Jesus. In asking this question, he's referring primarily to who do the Jewish people say that I am? Do you think he knew? Do you think he knew what the Jews thought? Yeah, he knew. You realize, don't you, that you ask questions. Most of the time you ask questions, you ought to already know the answer. So you ask your children questions to lead them, to guide their thinking so that they have to reflect internally. But you better know the answer a lot of the times or you'll be in trouble. When I practice law, I ask a question very early. First case I ever had. And this senior partner said, don't ever ask a question you don't already know the answer to. You do not know where it'll go. But that lesson applies to many, many, in many different areas. So Jesus would have known what they thought. But he wanted his disciples to think carefully about basically what has been the effect of his ministry. 
What do these people think? Jesus has been teaching. He has healed disease. He's cast out demons for more than two years. So what's the result? What are the people thinking? What do they think about his identity? So Jesus is asking this question. And he wanted to know about the Jewish people. But he's interested in your answer as well. The answer to this all-important ultimate question determines our eternal destiny when answering this ultimate question realize that popular opinions are irrelevant verse 14 and they said the disciples some say John the Baptist others Elijah still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets And Luke 9, 19 says, still others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. So some of these Jews believe that Jesus was John the Baptist. But what's happened to John the Baptist? He's been beheaded. So they believe that John the Baptist had come back to life to continue this ministry of announcing the arrival of the Messiah. The king who actually beheaded him... Herod Antipas said that, said he must be John the Baptist in Matthew 14. Other people thought that Jesus was Elijah, a great Old Testament prophet who was the expected forerunner of the Messiah, that Elijah had come back from the dead. At Jewish Passover celebrations, which what are they called? Say it louder. Satyrs, yeah. There is a glass of wine poured at the end of the meal that's specifically for Elijah. And, and we have some folks that grew up Jewish. We have some folks that are still Jewish in the church. And this one lady told me that she could swear that somebody was drinking that wine at the table. I think she might have drank too much wine before that happened, Mindy. But... But anyway, there would be a glass of wine that would be poured specifically for Elijah. They'd often also set the door ajar so Elijah could come in and drink the wine and to announce the Messiah's arrival. And that's today's practice in Passover. Still others thought that Jesus was Jeremiah, another revered prophet who some Jews expected to restore the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, it's been lost. And, and also to place it back at the altar and put the altar and the ark in their proper places in the temple before the Messiah would return to establish his kingdom. And then the, there was another statement. Perhaps he's one of the ancient prophets. And that just indicated that people made all kinds of suggestions about other Old Testament prophets who Jesus might be. But notice the commonality. In all these suggestions, Jesus was thought to be only a prophet. Only someone who has come back to life with God-given miraculous powers. You see, these people could not deny Jesus' supernatural powers. But they would not accept him 
as Messiah and Savior. Since Jesus' day, people still want to speak highly of him, all the way up to the present day. But they want to speak in glowing terms without recognizing his true identity as God and Lord. Because to do that would make them accountable to him. Today, he's said to be a a good teacher, a great teacher, a moral leader, a prophet, even very commonly today, the founder of one of the great world religions like Muhammad or Buddha. And our culture, particularly in the South, but even in the country as a whole, he is commonly thought of as the son of God, as the savior. But even so, he is not recognized as the Lord and the ruler of our lives individually. Popular opinion is that he he desires to forgive us of our sins if we'll merely ask, but he has no expectation of relationship, no expectation on our lives, no standards for us to live by. So he's a vending machine. We want forgiveness, but we don't want responsibility. That's not a relationship. When we are asked, our answer to this ultimate question, it's irrelevant what our friends think, what our family members think, what other people in our culture think, what the pop stars think, that's really irrelevant. Because none of those opinions by others, no matter how prevalent, will remove the tragic consequences of having a wrong response. So what controls your view of the identity of Jesus? The popular opinions of our culture? Your own ideas or preferences? Are God's word. You know, the reason I wanted us to spend more than a year in the Gospels is because I think we have, we have projected too, much, too many of our own opinions onto Jesus. And what we need to know is how he reveals himself in his word. Regarding this ultimate question, a personal response is essential. But you, he asked them, the disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, that shouldn't surprise us, he was always the first to speak. A little bit impulsive, or a lot impulsive, but at least not passive. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Or Luke says, God's Messiah. Now Messiah, what language is the word Messiah from? Hebrew. And it's equivalent to what word in Greek? Christ, same word. 
And it literally means the anointed one. Well, who was anointed? In your Old Testament understanding, who was anointed? Which means applied oil on the head. Say it loud. Kings, priests, and prophets. So see, the Messiah was coming as prophet, as priest, and as king. And he was also the son of the living God, which sonship expresses the idea of one essence. It's like when we say, like father, like son. Without hesitation, Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah. But understand the background. Peter, the other disciples, and the Jewish people had been taught to expect a conquering and reigning Messiah warrior king who would deliver God's people from their enemies and establish forever a righteous kingdom on earth. That promise was made to David, 2 Samuel 7, 16. Jesus' miracles were clear evidence of his Messiahship. But his failure to use his powers to overthrow Rome, to establish an army, to engage in battle, to establish himself on the throne, brought Jesus' identity into question. Some of us have some ideas of who Jesus is. And the real Jesus doesn't measure up to our expectations. These disciples fluctuated. They were confused at times and they fluctuated between great moments of faith and and other moments of grave doubt. So this bounced back and forth from great faith to grave doubt. But Peter had to decide personally and individually. And so do you. To say you don't know, to say I need some extra time is the same as denying Jesus. There's a legal principle that silence when there's a burden to speak, an obligation to speak is denial. And it's true in faith. You have to decide. You have to decide. Who do you, not your family, not your friends, not this culture, say Jesus is? I spent some time this past week in Augusta. My 86-year-old mother is um, in declining health. In the, she was in the hospital. I never had a day that I doubted the existence of God. Not one day. Because my mother's faith was always very real and very apparent. Despite that, I wasn't born again until I was 20 years old. A senior in college. Attended church every Sunday. And we had Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Some of y'all couldn't tolerate that. I never doubted the identity of Christ. If 
but I was not born again. I knew the facts. I hadn't experienced the faith. To answer the ultimate question rightly, particular revelation is required. At verse 17, and Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Some translations say bar Jonah. Bar and son of means the same. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now, Jesus wasn't saying, I'm blessing you because you gave this answer. What Jesus is saying is you have been blessed because you know. Because you only know by revelation from God. It has to be revealed to you. See, Jesus' teaching and his miracles were not sufficient to convince Peter or the disciples or the thousands of other people who witnessed his miracles that he was the Messiah. They saw it. They knew it wasn't trickery. But they weren't converted. They couldn't believe he was the Messiah or that he was divine. Here's why. Human capabilities. This, this verse says flesh and blood. But that's human logic, human reasoning, human rationality. Cannot bring understanding of spiritual matters. They're of two different natures. Look at this verse. I'm, I'm going to keep bringing this verse back until we get this. People who aren't spiritual, and what that means is, and other translations say, who don't possess the spirit or who have only physical life. People who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolishness to them. And they can't understand it. You can understand it cognitively, but it doesn't, it doesn't grasp you. It doesn't change you. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. The Father himself must reveal such truths. Only the Spirit can bring understanding of the identity of His Son so that when you have that understanding, it's true. It's not debatable. It's undeniable. You know what I'm talking about? I can't talk you out of it, can I? Because it happened to you and it changed you in the process. And it's only the Father that can bring understanding of His Son to human minds by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit convinces us of Jesus' identity from his word. Well, this sounds strange. How does this happen? Listen to Gene Boothsby's story, gain some insight. My name is Gene Boothby, and I was born and raised in Greenville, South Carolina. My mother and father were very good Christians and they uh, raised my brothers and me to always do what was right in our lives. My grandfather was a, a Baptist minister and my great-grandfather was a founder of the church we belonged to. 
I mean, I would always go to church. I went to all the uh, revivals. I got saved. I thought I got saved. And I, I heard the word born again a lot, but I, I guess I didn't understand it. I didn't pay much attention, but I knew they knew more about the Bible than I did. Well, I started to Brookwood right after they started. Moving forward to my retirement, I got involved in the church and I worked in the office and I prayed in the prayer room for other people that were having problems and I went, was in a Bible class and I even got to one time my husband and I, Chuck and I were, we were counting the offering every day. But still, I was just going to church. I continued living like that, thinking you know, with a false thought that I was a Christian and it's what I needed to be. But still, I guess I never thought about the born again until I started to Brookwood. One day I was there in, uh, at church and Perry talked about, he always talked about being born again and I listened and so I started talking about and praying about being born again. I got to thinking on my way home from church, I thought, Jesus, that, was he talking to me? And so I prayed about that, and uh, when I did, Jesus said, yes, it was you. And he told me what I still resented in my life. And when he did, I prayed for forgiveness, and from him, it, it, just, it just happened. I mean, it, it, the Spirit was in my heart, and I was saved. And I cried all the way home, and I prayed, and, and Chuck was in the car with me. And, and I think that Jesus is real. I guess to me he wasn't real, I was just a Christian, you know. I mean, I knew the Bible and I knew what he said and I knew all the parables and I knew everything, but I know he's there. I know he's rocking right beside me. Now I'm happy. I have a lot of problems. I've had a lot of health problems, but I can get up every morning. I'm happy. I'm walking in God's grace. I have peace in my life. And and everything's good for me. I know where I'm going and I know what I have to do on earth, but I don't do it before I ask God. And he tells me every day what to do. So that's my life. You know, Jean was an, an honest person. I mean, for goodness sakes, we let her count the offering. <laughs> she attended church and she listened to sermons and she served. She prayed in the prayer room. She was living rightly. And then she encountered God's spirit. She was born again. She believed and was changed. That truth will not leave you unchanged. You can accept it factually, cognitively. It's different than being born again by the Spirit of God. So the question is, has the Holy Spirit revealed the identity of Jesus to you personally, experientially, so that you've been born again. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about sincerity. Jean was very sincere for all of her life about, about the Bible, about Christ, but she had never experienced the Holy Spirit regenerating her. Remember, Nicodemus had memorized the first five books of the Bible. And he said, how do I inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, you must be born again. How does this happen? How can a man be born again when he's old? And Jesus said, the Spirit's like the wind. No one knows from whence it comes or where it goes. 
The correct answer to the ultimate question provides foundation for church. Verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter. This is the point at which which, um, Simon was given the name Peter. Now he said, yeah, but they've called him Simon Peter earlier. But it was by the authors of the books who were identifying him. Because he later became known almost exclusively as Peter. But this is the point at which Jesus called him Peter. So I also say, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. That's kind of a play on words. Bless you. The first mention of, this is the very first mention of church. It's a Greek word, ecclesia. And it means called out ones. And it referred to an assembled group or community of people. But understand this, Jesus was not referring to a bricks and mortar building or even a wooden building. He was referring to citizens of an eternal kingdom. There is no church at this stage. You understand that, don't you? There is no, in fact, Jesus didn't come to start a new denomination or a new sect. Jesus came as fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. It was only after the religious leaders rejected and even persecuted the Christians that they began to be independent from the temple. Jesus always spoke in the synagogue so they, were, they considered themselves just as Jews. The Christian church as a separate entity didn't begin until what festival? Pentecost. 3,000 were saved. And that began what we know of as the Christian church. But they weren't even called Christians until Antioch later on by the arrival of the Holy Spirit. The name Peter, which Jesus gave to Simon, is a Greek word, petros, and it means a piece of rock. Whereas the word rock that Jesus said is from petra, meaning a large rock formation. So he's using a play on words, but what he's really saying is that that Peter, you're a part of a larger group that will form the foundation of, on which Jesus will build the church. Look at this, Ephesians 2.20. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. See, the foundation is Jesus. It's not Peter, 1 Corinthians 3.11, another verse. The foundation wasn't Peter himself. The foundation wasn't even the disciples who would become called apostles after they witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Peter was the leader. He was the spokesman. He wasn't the foundation as a person. The foundation of the church is the revelation of God that is given through apostles and prophets. You see, the foundation of the church wasn't a man, Peter. It wasn't a group of men, apostles. The foundation of Christ's church is his word. It's his revelation. 
And these apostles were used as because they were appointed and inspired teachers of God's word. Where God's word is not preached, it's not a church. Because the church is the foundation. Well, who builds the church? What did the verse say? Who? No, we don't build it, no. Look at the verse. Who builds it? Jesus, see, we think, unfortunately, we think we do it as a human instrumentality. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus builds his church. Not human reason, not persuasiveness, not clever programming, not talented performers. Now, we can put together a a, a decent program and we might win some converts. But we win converts to an organization, even to a cause, perhaps to a personality. But we have no power to convert anyone to Jesus Christ apart from his spirit and his word. Human effort can only produce human results. Now, we can put on a a better show, you know, we can get someone without an accent to speak. If I could get funnier or be more outrageous, we might could gain some new bodies in the room. That's not the church. You see what I'm saying? That's bodies in a building. But the church is unseen. It's the community of eternal beings of people who've been born again by the Spirit of God. So there is a church within this building. God alone can produce divine results. You know, if we really understood that, you know what would happen in our lives? We would pray. We would pray. Because we would understand how powerless we are to effect spiritual change. Now, you can cause human change. You can't cause spiritual change. Only God can, so we pray. You know, we gathered this morning. We gather every Sunday at 8.15, but I told you, all right, I, don't want, I know some of y'all are thinking, oh, gosh, if I ever go, I'm there. To, I have to come every Sunday till God comes back, till Jesus comes. So I said, just come the first Sunday. So this morning, we had a large gathering, but some come every week. But you know what? Because... I wish it was, it was that if, if, my, if my message is clever enough or incisive enough, something really supernatural will happen. But it's always God's spirit. And you know this, sometimes people stop me in Bilo or wherever and they say, oh, what you said that Sunday, it changed me. And usually it's not anything I said at all. Because it's the spirit of God. When the spirit of God speaks to you, you change, not when Perry speaks to you. The church in America is a human church, unfortunately. And it's why the church gets bigger and society goes downhill. Christ does use us. We are his instruments. 
But, but he only uses us if we're committed to his gospel, to his kingdom, to his righteousness. And wherever we step away from his direction, we're on our own. You see what I'm saying? And here's the result. On this rock, I'll build my church. And the forces of Hades will not overpower it. Okay, Forces is not a good translation in my opinion. A literal translation is what? Some of y'all learned this, you memorized it. Gates. I don't know who said it, but that's a better, that's a literal translation. Gates of Hades. Now, we think this means that all the forces of Satan will attack the church and they can't defeat it. Isn't that what we think it means? It's not what it means at all. Because think about it. That's how it's interpreted, but gates are not instruments of warfare. But that's how this passage is commonly interpreted. Gates, what are gates used for? Keep people out or keep people in, right? They're they're contraptions for containment. Hades doesn't mean hell. Hades is a Hebrew, or or it's equivalent to the Hebrew word Sheol. And it refers to the abode of the dead. It doesn't refer to hell. But you'll find translations that translate it as hell. But it's not the place of damnation or condemnation. It's the place of the dead only. Jesus was declaring that death cannot hold God's redeemed people captive. Because see, our greatest fear is death. The, the notes, I hope, you, I hope you have a book and I hope you read these notes. These are good. The phrase could be interpreted as the power of death. So Jesus says the power of death can't destroy his church. And that's well said, but it's, it's more literal. The gates of Hades won't prevail against God's, against Christ's redeemed people. Death can't imprison the church of God because Jesus has conquered sin and death. And then he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. That's a strange verse, isn't it? Do you wonder what that means? Here's what it means. It means that Christians have the authority to declare what is divinely forbidden or permitted on earth. Well, that's judging. We're not supposed to judge. That's not what the verse says. The Sermon on the Mount that says don't judge, it says, it says don't judge until you've cleared the log out of your eye. Then you spot the speck and help with this, the, the speck in another person's eye. See, we've taken this do not judge, mean, meaning do not say anything, which has completely eliminated our moral influence in our culture. And we've let the world shut us down. What this means is, yes, don't judge based on personal opinion. Don't judge based on your preference. 
You see what I'm saying? That's where we go wrong. When the church adds rules to the word, we're on our own. I mean, I grew up Southern Baptist. And boy, it was, you know, it was awful to dance. You can't dance. It's, it's too sensual. And I'm saying, you hadn't seen that bunch I've seen dance. There's nothing sensual about that. There's something terrible about it, but there's nothing sensual about it. But see how we add that, and then alcohol. You can't drink anything. Well, it does say don't, don't be drunk with wine. Don't do anything that causes a weaker brother or sister to stumble. Those are the biblical standards, but we put all these rules. Well, you know what? Rules don't yield righteousness. So we want to be clear that what we say reflects God's revealed word on all these issues. Everything we say about about this what's right, what's wrong has to be based on his revelation. We don't determine right and wrong. We don't get to say what's forgiven and what's unforgiven. We don't get to declare the eternal destiny of people on our own opinions. But we do, not only do we, are we supposed to, we should declare what God has already determined in the Bible. You know what? We're rolling, we're running scared. And our culture is becoming corrupt. You know why? Because we are silent. We are so afraid. Someone will say, oh, you're judging. No, the answer to that is, no, I don't have any authority to, ju- to judge, but God has declared this right and this wrong. is isn't my opinion, it's his, but we are called to express that opinion. Humbly, yes, but don't back away from that. That's your assignment in this culture. And, you know, people say, well, the reason the Bible was written so long ago, that, this, that they, you know, God didn't understand this morality. This is enlightened thinking. No, no. He... The Roman culture was far more immoral in far more ways than our culture today. So it wasn't that, that this writing, biblical writing, was by naive people who didn't understand evil. They wrote by revelation in a culture that was more corrupt, more perverse than ours, if you can believe that. The church... 1 Timothy 3.15 is supposed to be the pillar or support and the foundation of truth in this culture. When we judge on the basis of God's word, humbly, we can be certain that our words align with the judgment of heaven. Are your words and opinions about Jesus, faith, and morality based on the Bible's teaching? Or do you follow your own preferences or this culture's opinion? You say, well, I'm just more open-minded. I'm more tolerant. Well, then you've stopped being God's mouthpiece. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. 
Jews were clamoring for a conquering king to free them from Rome. We want someone to to be sure that we have a pass into heaven. But what's offered to us is a savior to set us free from sin with whom we begin a relationship. So who do you say Jesus is? You say, you know, I'm confused. There'll be counselors here. Counselors, you come on up. Someone will pray with you, talk with you, but start with where you are right now and say, you know what? I don't know whether I'm born again or not. I've gone to church much of my life. I know all these facts, but have I truly been born again by the Spirit of God? One question, you say, how much have I changed? Do I love God? Do I love his word? Do I love his people? Do I long to please him with my life, not myself? Jesus said, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He added, I will cast out none whom the Father give him. Take a moment before you leave and say, God, where am I? Be sure you can answer this ultimate question. Father, I pray that you'll show us ourselves. But Lord, that you'll draw us to yourself, that you'll reveal your identity to us in a way, not that that we understand intellectually, but in a way that consumes us spiritually, emotionally, mentally, even physically. Save us, Lord, I pray. Amen. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. If you have questions about this message or you would like to request prayer, we encourage you to visit our website at brookwoodchurch.org forward slash get help. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. We thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.